0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. You're listening to the AJ Bell Money & Markets Podcast. This week I'll be chatting about the stocks that have rewarded investors this summer. I'll be looking at why W. WH Smith isn't overly optimistic about the reopening of the travel sector and also be looking at why tech firm Blue Prism is the latest UK takeover target. And joining me on the show this week is Laura Souter. She's going to be talking about the underappreciated dangers of freely tapping your debit card in pubs and shops.
0: We're also going to be talking to A.J. Bell Investment Director Russ Mould about the latest get-together of central bankers and economists and why the event has helped to drive U.S. stocks to a new record high. And today, Dan is going to look at some simple ways that investors can access popular investing themes. And later in the podcast, I'll explain why Britain faces a £371 billion savings shortfall. But first up, let's look at markets this week, Dan
1: yeah so w Smith's caught my eye. shares were down about six percent on a mild profit warning for its new financial year, and it's blamed uncertainty on the travel outlook and accounting charges for a recent bond issue so if you just think that you know lots of people have been away this summer abroad for their holidays um it kind of feels like the travel industry is getting back on its feet, but there's still sort of those nasty um ever changing Regulations from not just from the UK government, from from overseas governments as well, about um, who was allowed into the country and you know and what whether you have to quarantine stuff. So, Joe Smith has just taken the view that it's it's really hard to to sort of predict um, how earnings might be you know in the coming months and i kind of feel sorry for the, for the company having to do that on the first day of its financial year it's not the sort of the yeah the that's got to be stuff. fairly
0: unprecedented isn't it
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i wonder if it's a case that analysts actually were a bit overly optimistic with their 2022 forecasts as well but you know i think forgetting to factor in the charges linked to the bond issues a bit um, is a bit silly from the analyst's point of view we had another company called computer center earlier this week had a sort of a sly go at analysts saying that market forecast for out of kilter with its own expectations because less than half of the analysts who covered the stock had managed to upgrade forecasts after July's trading update so you know what what were these analysts doing they clearly were just on their holidays weren't they not thinking about it. What they, you know, getting those numbers up to date as possible. But, um, you know, elsewhere on the UK market, you know, we've talked for weeks on end on this podcast about takeovers. And, you know, it has been one of the big stories for UK stocks this year. And the latest one to be in the firing line from private equity companies is the tech company Blue Prism. So back in July, shares in Blue Prism were trading at their lowest level in four years. You know, it suffered from missing expectations on, on some of these growth uh, forecasts, had a few execution issues. And also there's been sort of a bit more competition in its market. So actually, one of my colleagues on Shares magazine, Steve Fraser, wrote quite an interesting article about seven weeks ago on why investors might want to have taken another look at Blue Prism. he's pointing out it was trading on a fraction of the valuation to some of its US listed peers, and that takeovers happen when people least expect it and of course now lo and behold we've got this confirmation of takeover interest and and the shares are going bananas but you know if this does get taken over then it's yet another one of you know the UK's listed tech stocks to leave the market and I, I just think that's not really a good thing that you know Tech is an interesting area for investors um, clearly it's a great source of earnings growth at the moment and I think that you know we kind of need all the tech stocks we can get on the UK market otherwise people just start shunning it and just simply look at UX you know sort of US stocks only
0: yeah and so even though some places have done well it's been a bit of a patchy summer this week for quite a few stock markets um Dan done some research into the stocks that have rewarded investors this summer and maybe those that haven't
1: yeah, so I think it's yes, you know, indices has sort of gone up and down, and not or made massive progress. But, you know, if you'd pick your stocks uh, carefully and, and, you know, pick the winners, you would have done quite well. I mean, there's, you know, if you exclude the ones that have been pushed up because of takeover activity like Morrison's and Megat and Ultra Electronics, there are some really interesting movements. If you look at the list of rises between the start of June and the start of September. So up more than 70% in those three months is Reach. Um, you know, It's a media company. It's it's involved in both printed newspapers and also lots of digital stuff now. So it, its titles include the Daily Express and um, OK Magazine and Daily Mirror. But really, the key to its success has been strong growth in digital interests. And also, there's been a bit of a resurgence in the advertising market, and it, it's really benefited from that as well. Another stock that's done incredibly well over the last three months is Trust, the asset management business. So, yes, it tried to launch an ESG-themed investment trust and didn't get the support it needed from institutional investors. But actually, it does remain an asset manager very much in demand from investors and with products across a range of areas. And just the other stock, which is, you know, I just think that no one is talking about at all. Is TrustPilot. So this joined the stock markets fairly recently. Um, is up fifty percent in three months. You know, I, I think if you just look at, uh, um, you know, nearly all companies these days, if you look at their advertising, they really love to use TrustPilot scores. Um, I think mean, it's very important if you're you're going to buy a product or a service, you want to read what other customers think of this business, and you know, TrustPilot is a, is a fantastic way of doing this. So you know, I was actually trying to buy a sofa at the moment and i was having a look at some of the uh, TrustPilot trust pilot scores i found a product that i wanted but, but horrifically the 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 retailers that it's got near unanimous negative scores saying it's a utter nightmare for when it has things uh, in terms of sorting out and delivering customer service so you know it just it sort of completely changed my decision i'm, I'm not going to do that so i mean laura i'm sure that you're the same are you do you ever look at trust pilot scores when you're trying to sort of work out whether to buy something or not
0: yeah, I think I factor them in along with other customer reviews and, and all of that kind of data. But it does seem like, like you say, more and more websites are kind of prominently putting their Trustpilot scores or links on their websites.
1: So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's sort of, all companies know the importance of it of course that uh, trust put that puts trust pilot in a very strong position to try and sort of sell them more services and stuff so i think you know i don't particularly know the company very well but you know if something's gone up 50 percent, i want to know more about it so i shall certainly be going to uh, have a bit dig deeper into that that stock in the coming weeks.
0: So well done to any listeners who've been lucky enough to own those shares this summer. Um, Earlier in the show, Dan pointed out that US markets have done pretty well this year, despite concerns about when central bank stimulus measures might be withdrawn. So Russ Mould is here to explain what's going on.
1: Brilliant. Russ, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's nice to be here. So lots of central banks met last week at the Jackson Hole Summit and markets were very interested in what would be said by Jerome Powell, who's the chair of the US Federal Reserve. So investors wanted to know when the US would start to ease stimulus measures that are currently supporting the economy. And actually, the outcome was a bit of relief to markets as stocks have continued to rally. So Russ, what did Powell say to
2: appease investors? Not a vast amount, which I think was probably all, all part of the secret. What What markets were frightened of was that Mr. Powell and his colleagues at the US Federal Reserve would say that they were going to start actively reducing the amount of stimulus that they're pumping into the economy, not even take it away. Markets were frightened of them even even reducing quantitative easing. Mr. Powell said that they would be looking to taper at some stage, possibly this year. But even if they did so, interest rates would be kept very low for a long time afterwards. Although he says that the Federal Reserve has met its inflation target of 2%, it still feels that it's not meeting its mandate of full, empl- full employment because the US unemployment rate on the official number is still 5.4%. And on the sort of less official rate, the U6 number that looks at discouraged workers or those who are having to work part-time or like a full-time job, well, then the unemployment rate is still 9.3%. So I think the fact that the Fed will keep on providing monetary stimulus at the same time as the Biden government is looking to provide fiscal stimulus and infrastructure spending I think that reassured markets that there'd be lots and lots of economic support provided, even as there's uncertainty over the the, the Delta variant and, and, and other geopolitical issues, and that that free or cheap money would perhaps continue to flood into assets because there's no return on cash. The return on bonds is very limited and currently actually below the, the, some of the inflation rates that we're seeing. So you're losing money on those in real terms. And so I think there's, there's, it comes partly back to this argument of, Tina, there is no alternative when it comes to people investors looking to allocate towards equities, towards shares.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the key takeaways from the Jackson Hole event was that the timing for when QE is tapered is not the same as raising interest rates. So when do you actually think that rate hikes will start to be the main worry for investors?
2: well uh, interestingly it has it has started in some ways um there's a there's a there's a website I, I look at called cbrates.com which tracks global central bank interest rate decisions and it points out that there have there have been 46 rate rises globally this year uh, against just eight cuts and last year there were 200 and odd cuts and about eight eight increases so you've definitely seen a shift in momentum and i think what was interesting last week was that as jackson hole was happening south korea and iceland became the first developed market developed economy central banks to raise interest rates this cycle until then it's been predominantly it's all been emerging market com- countries Brazil Mexico, Russia uh, very much in in the vanguard there so the process is starting. you've also seen um the Reserve Bank of Australia say it will start to taper quantitative easing in September the, the, ba- the Reserve Bank in New Zealand's already stopped adding to its program. The Bank of Canada is, is talking about, tapering, is already tapering quantitative easing. So you're starting to see, I think to say policy tightening is perhaps a, a, a bit much, but certainly policy becoming less accommodative because interest rates are still incredibly low and quantitative easing is still being piled on. But the process is starting. The Fed's official forecast for rate rises is still perhaps one rate rise in 2022 and one or two rate rises in 2023. Now, that's been described by a lot of economists as hawkish i.e. aggressive. I mean, for me, raising interest rates from 0.25% to maybe 0.75% or 1% in two years, that's kind of like a budgie clearing its throat, really. It's it's not desperately aggressive at all, but it, it is certainly more aggressive than what we've been used to. But it, it, is, it does feel like it's going to be a gradual process. And it was interesting that as South Korea and Iceland raised rates last week and, and the Fed debated it publicly, the International Monetary Fund's chief economist, Gita Gopinath, she actually said, look, you know, emerging markets don't really want to see too much policy tightening or if there is policy tightening, it's got to be done very carefully, very clearly, potentially gradually, so that they aren't too badly hit by, by by any fallout from stock market volatility or economic volatility, which if you think back to when the Fed was actually tapering quantitative easing in 2018, there was a big economic wobble in summer 2018 and a big stock market wobble and the, and the Fed was already backing off even before COVID. So I think they will be proceeding very gradually.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of focus on what the Federal Reserve is up to, but why do the actions of the US central bank matter to someone in the UK?
2: I guess it's been seen as a key driving force in what's the world's largest economy, which is the home to the world's largest stock market, the world's largest bond market, the world's reserve currency, the US dollar. So I think what happens in America naturally has an impact right the way around the world through economics, but but particularly financial markets. I mean the Fed has publicly stated it's looking to try and create a wealth effect by suppressing interest rates and getting asset prices to rise so that people feel wealthier and go out and spend the money. Uh, and so therefore you would assume the obverse applies that if they start to tighten interest rates, maybe asset values start to go down and people feel less well off. And so I think that there is a some degree of, of nervousness about that that fairly fairly clear logic. And I think the Fed is itself nervous. If you look at US households, they've never been more exposed to the US stock market than they are now, whether it's through their 401ks, their kind of ice equivalents, or, or their broking accounts, or now through the, the, their Robinhood and, and, and other accounts that, that, that they've got uh, that have been opened in, in large numbers over the last 12 to 18 months. So perversely, you know, you would always have, you know, when I started as a junior fund manager in 1991, you know, it was always, look, if the economy starts turning down, then the stock market will start turning down. You almost think now, frankly. If the stock market turns down, that's what will take the economy down. And you, you can track U.S. consumer confidence and the S and P 500 index. You know they do seem to, to mirror each other. Which which is the leader and which is not is, is the follower is it's hard to divine. But you can easily construct the case if the stock market goes for a tumble, then it could actually take the U.S. economy with it. Which is, I guess, one reason why again why the Fed is treading extremely carefully.
1: Yeah, I mean we've had some pretty disappointing economic data from China in recent days. Now, why hasn't that derailed
2: stock markets? It's a good question. I mean, I think, I mean, emerging, well, emerging market assets on a relative basis to developed market assets are trading at multi year lows. um, And Chinese stock markets have taken a pasting this year anyway, because the the Chinese government is trying to take some of the heat out of what it sees as as stock market bubbles and some of the heat out of its economy. And again, this debate over inequality, you know, the Fed driving up asset valuations is helping. A percentage of the US population, but not the entire population. Um, And and China is is, is grappling with with the same issue. So Chinese stocks have already been hit very hard. Again, I think there's this at the moment in markets, this conscious or subconscious assumption that at any sign of economic or financial market trouble, central banks and or governments will step in and do something about it. And and you can see why, because that's what's happened consistently for the last 20 years. Since the great, since the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98, when the Greenspan-led Federal Reserve stepped in to bail out um, the long-term capital management hedge fund fund with 3.6 billion dollars, which looking back felt like quite a lot of money at the time, Um, doesn't feel like very much at all now. But um, it was pretty frightening at the time. Um, So I think there is that assumption that central banks will just step in and do something about it now. I guess the debate is if, if inequality is an, an issue and politically it, it does feel like it's increasingly becoming one and economically so, is it a good look for central banks or governments to be stepping in to support financial markets when other parts of the economy and, and, and workers are finding life pretty tough? I'm, I'm not sure it is. So It, it, it might not be as straightforward as, as markets perhaps are inclined to think. Valuations are near record, certainly record highs in the US. Volatility is very low. Uh, and as we saw last year, you know, or, or in 2018 or 2019, it didn't take much to create a bit of a wobble when markets were that complacent. So, do I? Am I convinced that stock markets are about to just tumble in the hole? No, because policy is still very accommodative. But when things, when making money is at its easiest, that is generally when markets can come up and sandbag you and, and be at the most dangerous. So I think, you know, yes, we've had good earnings. Yes, the macro looks fine. Yes, we've got lots of fiscal stimulus. But at the same time, valuations are lofty, hopes are high, volatility is low, complacency is high. So it might not take much to at least make things a little bit harder from where they are now. But for a real market wobble, a big one, you've got to see the market leaders crack. And in the, in, the, in that case, that's in the US, that's the FANG stocks, they're a quarter of the S&P 500 index. And if you look at their charts right now, and you look at their operating models and their earnings, they're all looking pretty good. So th- they could continue to keep, keep all boats rising. And... You know, the old law, again, when I was a junior fund manager, again, I was taught that the old law with bubbles was think of the most extreme you can think thing that you can think of and then double it, and you'll probably get to what a bubble can actually end up looking like. Um, so it, the, 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 in the end, bubbles are going to make you look daft one of two ways. Either you pull out early or you bail out too late. And, and I think we are in a bubble. What's going to prick it? I think in the end, if the central banks are forced to raise interest rates or bond yields rebel, because inflation becomes more sustained and entrenched, that looks the most likely candidate right now. But given that's the most likely candidate, it'll probably be something else completely out of left field.
1: (laughs) Well, brilliant, Russ. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure.
0: If you enjoy listening to the Money and Markets podcast, why not send us an email on podcast at ajbell.co.uk with any topics or people that you'd like to hear on the show?
1: So let's move on with some personal finance topics. So Laura, I see the maximum amount you can buy using a contactless debit card without having to put your PIN number in is going up. Is that a good thing?
0: Yeah, so it's going up to £100 and this is for um, debit and credit cards, all contactless cards. So... um, You might remember at the start of the pandemic, um, the limit was only £30 for contactless transactions. Um, That was up to £45 during the pandemic as a way to stop people having to input their PIN and everyone having to touch the same PIN machine. Um, And that's been hailed as a success by the government and by um, banks. And so it's now going to rise to £100 in October which is a pretty massive rise on that £30 that we had previously. And I would say not wholly positive. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news. But I'm not sure that many people are calling for such a high limit on their card. I think lots of people are able to just put their PIN number in if they're spending more than that current £45. Um, And the danger is here that I think... Well, firstly, it's going to be a dream for thieves because you can now, without knowing the PIN number, if you manage to get a lost, your hands on a lost or stolen card, you can now spend up to £100 in each transaction. And that might well be before someone's even realised that their card's lost or stolen. Um, but I think the second factor is the more detached we get from the money that we're spending and the transactions we're making, the more likely we are to recklessly spend. So where, if you think before you used to have to actually physically hand over cash and count out cash. And that in in the process of that you would think about what you were spending and how much you were spending. Now if you're just tapping a card, you're not even putting in a pin number, you might not even see the amount that you're tapping for. Um feels like we're getting slightly further removed from that and, and that means that we could see more people ending up in debt. Yeah, because
1: I you know, I was on holiday fairly recently and you, you after a while you know someone ha- just holds out the the sort of the card reader you just tap it and then you just move on don't you and then I, you know, get to the evening and look at my phone and see all these alerts for um, each of those individual transactions of what I've spent and you realize god you know they do add up don't they so it's um, i guess if you're going to a restaurant you know and, and the bill is more than um, what it you know the current limit is and it's sort of pushing you know 80 90 pounds if you like, if you with a family for example um, you know, I think that they there's a convenience factor. There, and you just you tap and you go there. You go, but uh, yeah, it's perhaps if, if you're um, out with your friends and you know in a, in a in a pub or in a club or something, and you get you know a very large round of drinks, and you're constantly tapping, then um, up to hundred pounds is it's a it's worrying how it could all add up, really, isn't it? So.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's the point is if you're – I mean, it's not exactly hard to enter in your PIN number, is it? So <laughs> no. um, I can't see that contactless is uh, – we're not all that pushed for time that we need to spare those – Five seconds that it takes to put in your PIN, and um, I think the cynic's view, and obviously I am not a cynic, but the cynic's view is that this is the government just trying to spur spending and get the economy going post pandemic. And if you're just able to tap your card and spend willy nilly without really thinking about it, then that could have a good economic boost.
1: Yeah. So from talking about spending, let's talk about savings. So Yorkshire Building Society says Britons are facing a multi-billion savings shortfall. Now, that seems a bit surprising because all the headlines I've read in the last year or so have all been about people saving lots of cash during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, exactly. And everyone has. Um, all of the figures that we get out show that everyone's saving far more than they were pre-pandemic and that that's still the case, even though we can go out and about a bit more now. Um, so there's kind of various estimates, but I think one of them is that uh, £190 billion collectively across the UK was extra was saved during the pandemic. Um but this research from yorkshire building society says that people still don't have enough money so what they looked at was the how much people would need to have in their savings account to feel financially secure Um, and this came out at about seventeen and a half thousand pounds is how much people would need to be able to feel like if an emergency cropped up or they lost their job that they would feel kind of financially secure. Hmm. And that's about seven thousand pounds more than the average person has at the moment. Um But I think really what this is, is highlighting the kind of divided nation that we've got. So I think both these things can be true. We as a nation have saved loads more in lockdown, but we also still don't have enough money. But those two households aren't the same. So the £190 billion extra that was saved um, is going to be one group of households and the people that don't have enough money and have had to dip into their savings is going to be um, another group of households. And so I think, I mean, we saw this all throughout the pandemic, people and families that did better that that didn't see any hit to their income and then they were managed to save lots of money from not going out um, but then those people that were furloughed or less their jobs and had to dip into their savings um, and had to borrow from from friends and family or put um, things on credit cards and they have not come out so well so I think we've got this kind of divided nation.
1: Yeah I, I'm quite interesting to see if there's any figures on Uh, All the people who had saved up money during the pandemic, how much of those savings have been spent, say, in the last eight, nine months? Because, you know, we we have read about people going on spending splurges and um, I wondered if there's anything left or, you know, people being a bit bit wiser about, you know, understanding that um, if we get another event like the pandemic again, you know, the importance of having some money to fall back on.
0: So I think um, the data that we do have from the Bank of England shows that still people are sitting on a lot of savings. So I think some people might have gone out and splurged. And we've obviously, we talked last week about the housing market going a bit bonkers. Lots of people have used their savings to upgrade their homes, buy bigger houses. Um, So we have seen quite a bit of that. But I don't, but we've still got a large amount of savings and a large amount more than we had going into lockdown. And one of the, Things that this Yorkshire Building Society research found is also that people's views on savings have changed as a result of the pandemic. So almost half of younger people, so 18 to 34-year-olds, said that they're going to save more carefully now Um, than they did pre pandemic. And so I think that reflects two things. One, that was the age group that got hit pretty hard in terms of job layoffs and working in industries that got put under lockdown. Um, But also it shows that people have got into the savings habit and they've realised that it's quite nice to have a little um, money to fall back on and that they want to keep doing that.
1: I I think that's good. I mean, anything that sort of um, people sort of laying the foundations to develop a savings habit, um, being a bit more responsible about money, hopefully that will will stick with them as they get older.
0: And hopefully we don't just all go out and splurge it when we can all go on holiday again. (laughs) Um, But before we go, it's time to look at the world of thematic funds um, and a new product that's launched this week, Dan
1: yeah so this is the launch of a new exchange traded fund or, or also known as etf so I, th- I thought for those listeners who aren't familiar with etfs i thought i'll, I'll give you, a, you know, a 30 second overview of them essentially it's it's an investment product which tracks a specific basket of stocks so the stocks that go into that basket are determined by an an index so for example you might find um uh, uh, an index would be the FTSE 100, so the 100 biggest companies on the UK stock market, or it might be related to a certain theme. So when you buy shares in that ETF, um, you can trade them freely throughout the day. They trade on stock market. So, but if the underlying index goes up in value, well, your ETF should do exactly the same thing minus just the little costs that come with it so you know there's no fund manager um, choosing what goes in and out here it's all kind of decided by rules um, and therefore the costs are typically cheaper than actively managed funds so they are they're they're very easy They're essentially just tracker funds um, and thematic ETFs are, are ways that you can play a certain theme so for example if you've got an interest in electric vehicles or you want to back companies that evolved in clean energy well rather than having to go through a very long lists of stocks and working out which one's relevant you can buy these thematic investment products which have already done that work for you essentially they, they they're following an index where someone has created rules and saying okay everything to do clean energy um, and they other sort of criteria they can then qualify for this index so The latest product to catch my eye is one that's called the Cleaner Living ESG ETF. So this will have the code DETOX, which is uh, (laughs) quite aptly (laughs) named for it. Um, This is about to launch on the London Stock Exchange. And it will give investors exposure to the, the, the accelerating global trend towards cleaner living. So you'll get exposure to companies that should benefit um, as more people embrace goods and services that are are linked to you know things that could be better for our bodies or better for the environment. So um, this ETF is sort of focuses on five areas, including food, health, um, transport, and energy. And and by you know if you were to buy this ETF, you would get exposure to names like Beyond Meat um blink charging company and peloton the the you know the, the, the bike at home business um you know, the, the index also sort of the etf providers sort of looked at this index it's tracking and, and over the last year if this product existed it would have it would have returned 50 percent in a year or 370 percent in the last five years and so clearly those are very attractive numbers because you can't sort of um just look at it and say okay this is is this going to be this will happen in the future you know whatever's happened in the past is certainly not guaranteed to to continue into the future that's always one of the most important lessons to remember with investing so I you know just to me is that there's this big rise in the number of thematic ETFs on the market but there are some downsides to them and I think it's important if you were looking to put money into this area just just to give it some consideration. The first is that, that many of them often lack scale in assets. So th- there was some research in July 2020 that more than half of about 130 thematic ETS had less than $100 million in assets. Now, a large number of these are fairly new products, so it also means that they they, they sort of lack a proven track record. And also there's been a bit of academic research which suggests that these thematic ETFs actually have slightly higher fees um than you'd might see with other sort of tracker funds. Um and also there's the point that many thematic ETFs don't actually perform that well because the theme has already peaked before the ETF comes to the market. So if you think that, you know, if everyone is talking about oh, clean living is a is major trend, well you have to think, well, all the savvy investors might have already sort of backed the stocks, recognizing this is going to be a big trend. But by the time there's a mainstream product like this, has all the easy money been made? Well, you know, there are situations where you can definitely still make money and know that theme is not played out, but it's definitely something to think about. And I think that despite these limitations, that you know, some of these ETFs can be useful tools for investors to consider.
0: That's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where we've got a mash-up between the very serious Bank of England and the children's comics Bino. So don't miss that.
1: Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next time.
0: Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.